Good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Craig Johnson, author of 13 best-selling Longmire mystery novels, including his latest, Depth of Winter, published on September 4th. Longmire has also been adapted as a hit television show, now available on Netflix. Craig and I first met at the Bookmarks Festival a few years ago and immediately hit it off. One of these days, my wife and I would love to visit Craig and Judy in Wyoming, but this morning we're reaching across a couple of time zones with a Skype connection. Craig, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Hey, Charlie. Good to be here. So you've been writing about Walt Longmire for 14 years now. It, is it harder or easier when you know your main character as well as you know Walt? You know, I'd like to think that it's easier, um, you know, because I'm not reinventing the wheel, you know, with every novel. Um, a lot of the times, you know, it's a lot of the same characters. Um, a lot of the time it's the same uh, surroundings and all of that. But I don't know. I think I was really lucky that I kind of stumbled onto Walt um, about 14 years ago in the sense that he's he's kind of multidimensional like that and gives me lots of opportunities to go in a lot of different directions. And um, I don't know. I, I, I think, you know, if you're not stretching, if you're not trying to do something different, you know, with the characters and allowing them to expand and become different and evolve like it, like we all normally do, like that, then you're kind of shortchanging yourself. And I think I really lucked out in the sense that Walt has given me lots of opportunities to go in so many different directions. And uh, and he's still good company. Um, I, I, I like to think that the reason why people like to read the books is the same reason that I like writing the books, which is, you know, Walt's just good company. I like climbing in the truck and seeing where he's going to go, what's going to happen. <laughs> are, are you ever tempted to write outside the series? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've actually got a couple of other novels that I've started. You know, one's a um, an actual period Western. Another one is a psychological thriller. Like that, uh, I, I've got a, a couple of different novels that I've started up on. I, th- I think it's important to, you know, to write outside of, you know, whatever your genre is like that or whatever it is that, you know, is your strong suit. Um, I think, you know, you, it's, it's easy to fall into a rut, you know, where you're, you're doing the same things over and over again. And even if you're not doing that, hopefully, you know, with a series, I still think it's good to like exercise those, you know, those writing muscles to be doing other things. Yeah. I think exercising the muscles is a really good way of putting it. That's kind of the way I think of it too. I, I write a little column for a local magazine and I do, you know, several things that are kind of outside, as you said, my, my wheelhouse. And I, I, f- I feel like that kind of, you know, gets the juices going to not, as you say, always be writing exactly the same thing. So, oh, absolutely. You bring something back, you know, to your regular writing every day too, like that, because, you know, you've, you've gone out, you know, outside the box there a little bit. It's kind of nice. Right. So I have to make a major confession here. This was my first Longmire mystery, but I felt like I understood what was going on right from the very beginning of the book. So how do you approach the task of, of making every book true to the series and what your your loyal, rabid fans want to hear, <laughs> and yet also able to stand on its own for a first-time reader? 
that's that's the that's the crux right there. That, that pretty much you know hits the the nail on the head, like that, so to speak. Um, it, it's uh, it's always a challenge. Like it's always a challenge. Like to decide, you know, just uh, you know how where where on that tightrope you're going to walk. Um, and you do. You have to be you know satisfying. Like to people who are loyal readers that have been following the series, you know, for um, you know, decades. Like and then you also got to be you know open to the idea that like there are going to be people that are going to pick this book up, you know, at the bookstore. And, or the library or whatever, like that. This may be their very first attempt, you know, at trying to enter Walt's world. And you don't want to alienate those people to the point where, you know, it's a high context kind of relationship, you know, with just this small group of readers. You don't want anybody else to <laughs> to come in like that. And so, um, I think it's a challenge, like that. And I think, you know, you it, it's kind of like a ball game. You got to play them up one at a time, like that. And uh, you know, some of the the big elements for me whenever I'm thinking about a book, you know, are you know, what is the message, you know, that I'm trying to get across with this book that's that's a number one like that i learned a long time ago and i'm i'm sure charlie you feel the same way like that that you know if you're just writing to fill pages you know you got a serious problem on your hands like it and so you got to ask yourself okay what is it that i'm trying to say you know what is it i'm trying to get across and uh you know that's a big element in the books um What's going to be the vehicle? You know, what's the plot? You know, that's going to carry this message. You know, and then there are other things that come into play too, like in the sense of you know, like well, where are the characters at this point in their lives, and what kind of an effect is this particular plot or this particular story um, going to have on their development? Um, is it going to you know hinder that development? Is it going to expand that development? Um, and then you know, one of the other you know, dirty little tricks like that that I use, you know, a couple of them. Like that, the first one is the majority of the storylines from my books tend to come from uh, newspaper articles, you know, from here in Wyoming and Montana. I, mm-hmm. I scour for, you know, sh- sheriff stories like that and uh, law enforcement stories because I really kind of like the idea that Walt is, um, you know, grounded in a reality of, you know, what Western sheriffing is really all about. I don't want Walt on a cruise ship. I don't want Walt, you know, trying to learn how to skateboard. I don't want any of that stuff. I want Walt dealing with the things, you know, the Western sheriffs deal with. And then there's another one that has a, a large scale effect on the development of the books too. There's, um, is the seasonal aspect. Um, <clears throat> there was a, another mystery author, um, who you might have heard of, like a fellow by the name of Tony Hillerman, like yeah. who I got to dinner with one time, like that. And uh, one of the pieces of advice that he gave me was, he said, you know, well, you got to, you know, kind of find a framework, and you know, to try and make each envi- each one a, a slightly different environment. Like that. And I started thinking about it. And I thought, well, what's the biggest thing that has an effect on us as Westerners? Probably would be the weather, like that. And so I started thinking, okay, well, I think what I'll do is pull a Vivaldi, is what I'll do. I'll do, you know, the Four Seasons. So it, it basically takes me you know, four books to get through one year of Walt's life. Um, and it also provides me with, you know, very distinct environments, you know, for each book, because, you know, January in Wyoming is nothing at all like July in Wyoming. And, uh, and I think that all of those, you know, kind of help, you know, to try and, you know, play each one up, you know, as a brand new game. Um, but, you know, still to be, you know, honorable, you know, to the, to the readers that have been with you for all those years. Right. Agatha Christie, who wrote about the same character many, 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 many books, uh, Hercule Poirot, she famously wrote about his demise in a novel called Curtain, which was to be published after her death. Now, I'm not asking you to give us any spoilers, but have you thought about <laughs> what's ultimately going to happen to Walt or how, how things might end? Do you have a plan for you know sitting out there about, well, when I'm ready for the last book, this is what will happen? 
I do, and I'm a big fan of like authors who think that far ahead. I mean, Dumas, you know, with the Three Musketeers, you know, 20 years after, and uh, you know, Horatio Hornblower, the short story, you know, that uh, that Forrester wrote, you know, that was you know much after you know his uh, his military career, like that, and Christie. I mean, all of these authors, I think it's very, you know, it, it shows a great deal of foresight, like <laughs> to think that you know you're not going to be around forever in writing these characters, and so why wouldn't you give them a little bit of a send off, you know? And uh, yeah, I have. I've, I've given a great deal of thought to it, and uh, you know, I, I have that, you know, out, in, you know, in the in the distance, you know, for myself. Like that, I have to admit. Um, and yeah, it, as a matter of fact, you know, whenever the television show. Uh, they were looking for a way to kind of like pause the television show before we see what's going to happen with it in the future. Um, it was interesting, you know, because they, they asked me, they said, you know, well, the producers, they said, well, what, what, you know, what do you see happening with Walt? Like, and it was interesting because they, they came up with a, uh, a modified version um, of what it was that I've got planned in the, in the very long, uh, long distance. Look at, and that's about as much as I'm telling you about that chart. Oh, no, that's all right. That's all right. I <laughs> have to wait, find out. <laughs> I think it's fair to say <laughs> that this is not your average Longmire mystery. This is not set in Wyoming. Uh, tell us the setup of depth of winter. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is definitely, um, I don't know. I mean, each book is, you know, is kind of a mountain to climb like it. And this of course was uh, a big mountain to climb like that. Um, you know, there's some that just take a certain amount of research that take a certain amount of work like, to, to make sure that you get them right. And, you know, this, this book takes place, you know, in northern Mexico. Um, and it's probably, you know, one of the most dramatically conflictive, you know, books that, you know, Walt um, has ever had to come to terms with. You know, he's up against some really, really bad guys. Like, I mean, a lot of times, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of like, you know, the, the – uh, uh, the quote that, you know, all cats is gray in the dark, like, you know, and it's not all white and black hats, like an awful lot of the time it's just gray hats is what it turns out to be. But in this one, well, in this one, there, there's some black hats that Walt has to kind of go up against, you know, and uh, for very good reasons. Like, and there's this character, um, Thomas Bedard, like that, who uh, actually kidnaps Walt's daughter um, as a final um, effect in Walt's life, you know, and the, the trials and tribulations that he's provided for Walt over the last few years like that. And, uh, it's kind of the last straw. It's one of those situations where Walt realizes that, um, this is a situation that's not going to go away. Um, this is an individual that's not going to go away. And this is a situation that he's going to have to finally deal with. He just doesn't have any choice at this point in time like that, because he knows that this individual is just not going to go away. And, uh, he's just going to have to fight that battle. Yeah, I, I like what you said about the black hats. I mean, the, to me, it was it, it was pretty clear who the bad guys were because they're really, really bad. <laughs> <laughs> they, they really, really are. <laughs> not that they don't have a certain charm to them. Well, like, I, I mean, mean uh, no, I mean, it doesn't mean that they're not multi-dimensional characters or or very interesting to read about. Um, but you but you certainly know who to who to root for in in this one. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, they, they have a deadly grace about them like that, but, uh, there's, there's a wonderful quote, you know, actually about the Northern Cheyenne like that, that, um, that's Annie, that's my dog. Like it. And she's just crying for breakfast is oh, what we, she's doing. Well, dogs are always welcome on the podcast. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the Northern Cheyenne say you can judge a man by the strength of his enemies. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, I always keep that in mind whenever I'm thinking about the antagonists, you know, in the books, I'm always keeping that under consideration. <laughs> So would you read a little passage for us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, this is actually from the first chapter um, of Depth of Winter. And uh, Walt finds himself uh, in, in northern Mexico like, in an attempt to try and uh, 
to get his uh, his daughter back. Okay, and uh, it's a it's interesting because it's kind of a it's the saddest revisioning of of the the Magnificent Seven there probably ever could be. Like this is the most misbegotten misfit group of individuals like that you could ever possibly hope for <laughs> to try and uh, uh, do this kind of adventure like that. And that, that's usually where Walt finds himself as a general rule like that. But this is from chapter one when Walt's kind of getting the lay of the land from uh, one of the, one of the locals. I turned my water glass in the slick circle of condensate on the smooth red lacquer of the red table between us and studied the man across from me. I was afraid that if I didn't pay attention, he might disappear. The seer was like that. It was as if he simply drifted away, giving him access to places without appearing to be there, making other people's secrets his own. You should take in some of the culture while you're down here south of the border. Go to the bullfights. Adjusting his straw pork pie hat to a jauntier angle, the hunchback smiled. You might enjoy it. I said nothing. He looked in my general direction, the smile slowly fading. My friend Miguel Guerrero says that you are highly motivated, but that if I can talk you out of this, I should. I still said nothing. He stared at me. Do you speak Spanish? I wiped the sweat from under my eyes with a thumb and forefinger and had a hard time convincing myself it was coming up on November. Very little. He had taken his cheap sunglasses off and placed them next to his drink. His eyes were opaque, and they wandered past me, towards the knobby hills of the south that rose from the desert. Like a bony hand, the fingers spreading to make peaks and battlements, as if the mountains were at war with the flat land. That's not good, because there, where you are going, there will be places where no one speaks English. The seer sipped his soft drink and then batted the white cane between the knees of his threadbare pants in the exact place where his legs ended. Your English is very good. He shrugged. I have lived my whole life here in Juarez, and back before the new drugs, we were just a suburb of El Paso. He glanced down at the truncated legs, not the old drugs that did this. My mother traveled to Germany in the 60s and was given the drug that took my legs and my sight, and in the process gave me this humped back. He vaguely waved at them sitting there like one of the battlements behind him. Did you know that hunchbacks are seen as lucky in my country, that we bring good fortune? I hope that's the case. Personally, it has never brought me any providence. He paused for a moment and then turned towards the Club Kentucky, seeing it the way it was in his mind's eye. Juarez used to be Las Vegas before there was Las Vegas. 24-hour bars, casinos, cabarets, brothels. The seer sipped his soda. It is said that this club invented the margarita. He nodded. Marilyn Monroe sat on that very stool where you sit now. How do you know Marilyn Monroe? He smiled broadly for the first time, and I was surprised at the blinding perfection of his teeth. My mother was here. In this bar? See, si. January 21st, 1961. Monroe filed for divorce from Arthur Miller here in Juarez. She was with two men, her lawyers. They filed a suit of incompatibility of character. He leaned in confidentially. A marvelous playwright. But she told my mother that he was hung like a cocktail sausage. <laughs> That's probably good. Stop. What do you think? And so, so this is this is the guy, this hunchback with no legs, um, who and isn't he blind? Also, am I remembering he that is. correctly? He's blind yeah, also, and, yeah. And, and he's going to help Walt take on this heavily armed drug lord in a you know sort of castle bastion in the middle of northern Mexico. And Walt just seems very zen about the fact that you know he, he can he can defeat this guy with almost no assets. I think I think that's. Uh, he, he, I never, I never see Walt really sort of particularly worried that he's not going to come out on top. I, I love his confidence. I guess 
is that um, where does where does that come from? Is that something that has developed over his past uh, adventures? Well, I think what it what it boils down to is is that he has um, everything to lose, and that has nothing to lose. Um, he's committed himself to this. Um, there's absolutely no question in his mind that this is something that has to be done, um, that nobody else is going to be able to do it, um, that probably there aren't that many people that are going to be able to help him. Um, and so I, I think, you know, for the maybe for the first time in, in 14 novels, he is so absolutely committed um, to what it is that he's going to do, that, uh, that, that the only thing he cares about is saving his daughter. The only thing he cares about is getting his daughter out of Mexico and making sure that she's okay. And uh, he, he's, I think he's kind of come to terms with the thought that he's not going to make it out of this, that he's not going to survive. And uh, there's a there's an, an incredible confidence that comes, you know, whenever you come to those kind of conclusions like that and uh, a definitive, you know, kind of uh, quality to your actions that uh, that makes, you know, even the most complex situations, you know, very easy to deal with, I think. Yeah. So Walt has worked cases outside of Wyoming before, but he's pretty far from home in depth of winter. <laughs> Why did you choose this particular setting, the, the rural northern Mexico? You know, I, I started doing a lot of research just thinking about, you know, if Tomas Bedard, you know, if he was out there like that, you know, having this effect on Walt's life, you know, what's an environment, you know, that he might thrive in. And uh, I, I kept reading all of these horrifying, horrifying articles, you know, about, you know, the violence, about the, the drug cartels and the narco society like that that's uh, down there in Mexico. And uh, and I thought, you know what, it, it truly is, you know, a bloodthirsty group of individuals like that. That really have no boundaries, and I thought, okay, that's the kind of place where Tomas Bedard, you know, would probably be right at home. As a matter of fact, he would, you know, rise to the top or sink to the bottom, you know, whichever direction you might choose, like that, to uh, make this kind of place his home. And um, he made the mistake before um, in a book called uh, A Serpent's Tooth, where he. Um, took Walt on in Absaroka County, took him on in Wyoming. And that was something of a mistake like that because Walt, you know, pretty much had all of his resources, you know, he had all of his uh, associates, you know, with him, Vic Moretti, like at Henry Standing Bear and all of these other um, people that Walt most usually relies on. And it didn't go well for him. And uh, so this time around, I knew that he was probably going to have to lure Walt, you know, into a situation and a place, you know, where Walt would not have um, the capacities that he normally has like that. And, you know, Walt's limited as to what he can do outside of uh, Absaroka County. And he's even more limited, you know, outside of the country. And uh, and so he's he's kind of on his own in this. It's 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 one man against an army, and um, you know it's interesting to see you know how he approaches this and, and what it is that he does. I'm, I appreciate what you said there. Like no one's picked up on the fact that like you know Walt you know, is pretty much a cool customer in this, just simply because he is um, so committed. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you said about how once you've decided that your own life is not uh, an asset that you're as worried about protecting there's a freedom that comes with that. Uh, oh, yeah. and, and you see that in, in Walt that once, once he's decided that, yeah, he's probably going to die doing this, then it's, it's very, I think it, it's very liberating for his character. So did you actually go to Mexico when you were researching the book? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> what, I what, what was did. that like? 
Um, it was interesting. Like, <laughs> I mean, I went, you know, from uh, El Paso, like, and it was interesting because, uh, okay, so you know, majority of the experiences that I had, I mean, I've been to Mexico, you know, numerous times in my life like sure. that, but uh, here recently, not so much, like, just simply because of the dangers involved like that. Um, and, and especially with Juarez, like that, that's kind of gone through, like, you know, a, a, a cleanup, as it were, like that, but that doesn't mean that there aren't still areas, you know, outside in the outskirts of Juarez that are still, you know, pretty doggone dangerous. And it was funny like that because you can actually hire um, people from over in uh, in El Paso like that that will um, take you over into Mexico like that, maybe into areas that, you know, might be a little sketchy, you know, which is, you know, kind of the, the you know, the areas that I had to go to like that to be able to, you know, write about a place like that that I'd, you know, been, but, you know, not not particularly lately. And, um, and they tell you what to dress, like that they tell you what to do and all of this, you know, in certain situations and all of this, you know, and I was having a marvelous time. Like I went and had a drink, you know, over at, uh, um, at, the, at the Kentucky Club. Like I went to a couple of areas there, like, at, you know, further south like that, you know, with this guide that I had. And it was funny like that because it was only about maybe, I don't know, three quarters of the way through the trip. Like and he finally turned to me like it and he said, well, are you a police officer? And I said, well, no, I'm not. <laughs> and, and he said, well, are you you're not in the drug trade or anything like that, are you? And I said, no, no, I'm not. Like it. And he said, well, what do you do? Like it. And I said, well, I'm actually a writer is what I am. I'm a writer. Like it. And he said, well, what do you write? Like it. And I said, well, I've got a series of books about a Wyoming sheriff um, that, that they've made into a television show that's on Netflix. And he goes, Longmire, you're the Longmire guy. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, actually I am. And he goes, don't tell anybody that. Don't tell anybody that while we're over here in Mexico because they kidnap people for ransom. Like, and if they find out who you are, oh, the chances are very good that they will want to kidnap you. And I, I thought that was pretty funny. Like, so anyway, like uh, that was, you know, a lot of the research. Like, and then, uh, and then just, you know, there's, there's tons of research, you know, on uh, some of the articles like that, that I had read that were just, um, just horrifying. Like at some of the stuff that's been going on, um, over there. Um, um, but it, it also carries a certain grace and beauty um, that Mexico does, like and a, and a, a charm to the people, like that. That's uh, just so wonderfully understated. Um, that any chance that I get, you know, I, I'll, I'll make a run over across the border, and uh, and and that won't be my last time there. I guarantee it. Yeah. Your story about you know don't tell them who you are reminds me of what happens in the novel, which is that that Walt doesn't tell people who he is, and uh, tell us about <laughs> I, he he assumes this great uh, persona uh, of a of a minor celebrity in order to go <laughs> undercover. T- tell us about that uh, who he becomes because I think it's just great. You know, I, I, it was really a, you know talk about challenges you know uh, you know a challenge is like trying to hide a six foot five 260 pound white guy um <laughs> you know, operating in in northern mexico i mean what, what are you gonna do like that i mean you know even the seer at the very beginning describes walt to a t even though he's blind um and so you know it, it's kind of an interesting situation you know to have walt there and to try and have him be undercover you know it's kind of ludicrous to think of walt being undercover um and so i started thinking about it like that and uh I, I think that the seer actually comes up, you know, with a pretty unique um, way of uh, of keeping Walt, you know, uh, kind of uh, unseen, you know, within the culture. Um, you know, being that big of a white guy, like that, he comes up with the idea that, uh, well, it, it, when they're first approached by the police, like, and they want to know who Walt is, like, and he says, "Don't you know who this is? You know, don't you know Mr. Cowboy? Don't you know, like, you know, how many Super Bowls he's won? How many you know, <laughs> NFC championships? You know, all this kind of stuff." And basically what he does is try and you know, play him off as Bob Lilly, um, <laughs> who was a very marvelous defensive end, I believe, like for the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I thought since they were in Mexico, probably 
it needed to be a Dallas Cowboy because that's you know somebody that they would recognize. And uh, and Walt, you know, having been an offensive tackle at USC, like at a Marine investigator and all this, he's a pretty sizable guy, pretty capable. Like, and so it just seemed to fit like that. And um, it, it provides a, a certain amount of, uh, of of cover, you know, for Walt you know, for a while at least. Look like at until uh, his cover is blown. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it seemed like any any time I get the opportunity to try and do something either funny. Um, I, I really don't have any choice. I'm always going to go with funny. Right. Funny always with me. Yeah, the, the scenes where he's signing these little plastic footballs for people and everybody's you know <laughs> taking the picture. I just love and and I did. You know, I think one of the things that makes uh, the book so readable is that even though it's you know as we said really really bad people who have who have captured his daughter for whom he is willing to die. I mean, this all sounds really dark and bleak, and yet there are these very funny moments that sort of allow you to breathe a little bit uh, and and not be sort of have that weighing down on you for the whole length of the novel. Well, I think that's essential um, in this type of, of book. I think, uh, first of all, like I, I get lots of emails, you know, from a lot of law enforcement. Like that, one of the things they always comment on is the humor in the books. You know, they say, well, it's, it's the humor that you, know, you really get right. Um, and because I, I think anybody that's had a difficult job realizes that you know the only way to survive um, is to make sure that you know you keep your sense of humor. You know, the old saying is, you can lose your badge, you can lose your gun, but don't don't lose your sense of humor. You'll right. be fine. Yeah. And uh, and I think you know dramatically like that. You know, for the structure the books look at I mean you know it, it's no great secret that I think um, you have to you can have that kind of tension you can have that kind of violence you can have that kind of uh, uh, ratcheting you know I guess of the storyline like that but you know at some point in time you're going to have to give you know the reader a breather right, um, right. or break that tension to a certain extent um, or you know it, it becomes a really long slow grind and I think that that would be not only hard to write but also hard to read yeah yeah so we you talked we've talked about uh, you mentioned Marilyn Monroe and Arthur Miller you talked about Bob Lilly I love that in I counted in three pages in the beginning of the book you allude to both Mary Kay Cosmetics and Sisyphus <laughs> uh, which is a pretty broad <laughs> spectrum of allusions how do you imagine your readers and does the fact that you get to to see so many of them either when you're out on tour or on Longmire at Longmire days does that affect the way that you write for them. Oh, I don't know. I mean, of course, you know, it affects, you know, uh, you know, my feelings like that, but I don't know if it affects, you know, the actual way that I write. Um, you know, I consider them to be very, very close friends. Like I, I'm not very good at that, you know, kind of professional persona of, you know, keeping arm's distance, you know, between me and my readers. I mean, my website, you know, craigallenjohnson.com, if you go on there and hit the contact button, that's my email here at the ranch. And uh, I always laugh about it, you know, because I get these emails that say, whoever it is responsible for answering Mr. Johnson's emails. I'm always sitting here looking at the computer and going, well, that would be me. <laughs> so, but uh, but I, I think, you know, I, I consider them to be close friends. Like it, And so in, in that sense, you know, that's who I'm writing for. I'm, I'm writing for my friends. Like it, And um, I also don't underestimate their intelligence. Like it, uh, the, the readers, you know, are just frighteningly intelligent and frighteningly insightful. You don't have to hit them over the head um, with the ideas. Like, it, you know, you can just, you know, give them a just a, a little bit of an opening like it, and they'll find it and they'll take it, which is always enjoyable for me. Yeah. So most authors only dream, or maybe we don't even think to dream, of the idea of a convention that's dedicated to a fictional world that we <laughs> created. Uh, but, but Longmire Days, uh, which is just that, was just a couple of weeks ago. What was that like? 
Um, it well, what I, I should probably define exactly what it is. Like, um, and Buffalo is the little town in northern Wyoming, up near the Montana border, at the base of the Bighorn Mountains. Um, that's got a population of about four thousand five hundred people, and uh, it's it's kind of the basis for Durant, um, as Johnson County is kind of the basis for Absaroka County, Walt's you know uh, county seat and his uh, um, and his county. And um, once a year, uh, every summer, uh, we have uh, Longmire Days. Look at where we have the entire cast of the television show and myself and about, I don't know, 15,000 of their closest friends like at all show up. And it's every bit the uh, the unnatural disaster that you are imagining, even as we speak. <laughs> it's one of those things where, um, you know, the grocery stores and restaurants run out of food. Um, the banks and the ATMs, you know, run out of, uh, of money. Um, there's no hotel rooms or even campsites, you know, for about 90 miles around. And, um, and, and everybody wanders around with their cell phones looking at the little blue circle of death, you know, because they've overridden the <laughs> bandwidth of one lonely little tower in Buffalo, Wyoming, and uh, I love going up to them and going, "Yeah, why doesn't Walt carry a cell phone, huh?" Like, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's actually pretty fantastic. It's 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 probably one of the most incredible things you know that that happens to me on a yearly basis. And uh, it, it, the way you described it actually kind of you know nails it too. Like that, it's just I, I feel like I'm in a Frank Capra movie or something <laughs> as I'm walking around, and all these people are like you know dressed with Walt Longmire garb on, and uh, you know they're 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 talking about the TV show, they're talking about the books, like it, and we have these signing sessions that go on for like you know four hours, and uh, you know the Cowboys versus Indians soft ball game and uh it's 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 a hoot it really really is like that and uh i kind of walk around kind of stunned i guess you know for about three or four days you know just it's more than i think you can really take in um you know, I mean, the, the wonderful passion that these people have, you know, for these characters in this place is just, it's just kind of stunning and very humbling, you know, to, to, you know, to a writer. This year you tweeted a picture of a guy who had a tattoo of Walt on, and I thought that's when you know you really made it as a, as an author. I mean, you know, did Shakespeare ever see a tattoo of Mercutio on somebody's back, you know? Yeah, it's you know I, I, I'm fortunate like that that uh, I, I generally don't get asked to sign body parts like at the act a lot of that kind of thing like that, so I do escape that you know as a general rule. <laughs> so the novel's set in northern Mexico, very close to the United States border, and Walt actually goes kind of back and forth across the border at, at the very beginning of the novel. And early in the novel, uh-huh. you have this scene of of his border crossing, which essentially includes these people in very low levels of authority who are deciding who can and can't cross over what amounts to a random line in the sand. And you mm-hmm. later on you have a character who expresses his opinions, for instance, about the futility of, of building a wall across the border. What do you see as the, the role of fiction or the relationship of fiction to current events? Well, I think as long as it's like, you know, a, a part of the storyline, as long as, you know, you're not just foisting something in just for the purposes of, you know, just, you know, saying it like that, um, or, you know, to make political commentary like that. But I think if it's essential, you know, to what these characters are thinking like that, then, you know, it's something you do have to take into consideration. And uh, the character, um, Buck Guzman, like that, the response that he makes is that it's kind of silly to think about a wall because walls don't work. Like that. Well, you can actually go back all the way to Marcus Aurelius like that, you know, and yeah. find that any kind of stationary defense, you know, <laughs> is not going to work. <laughs> Castles don't work. Walls don't work. If there's something 
something that somebody wants or something that somebody's going to try and overtake, guess what? Um, a stationary object is not going to be able to keep them from doing it. And uh, and I think you know in those situations, I think it's important you know to to make a statement. The other statement there also is is that you know um, that, that that these characters like you know there are a lot of very innocent people like that that are dying you know um, trying to get across those deserts you know to try and like find some kind of a better life like to be able to do something um, that that you know I mean to think that you know that the United States could survive you know without you know migrative uh, migrative uh, workers um, it becomes pretty clear like that you know from a lot of the you know the the, the states you know that rely on that that it's just not possible it simply isn't possible like and so then I think you know you you do owe a, an honest response to those type of things and then with the character of Buck Guzman, obviously he's very outspoken, and uh, and uh, has uh, some some very strong opinions, you know, about these type of things. Like that's simply because he's he's Border Patrol, like it, and he he works with these situations every day, and uh, and there's good and there's bad, like that, and uh, you know his his views are the mo- one of the most important things is to make sure that uh, you know that that we don't use these blanket kind of judgments, you know, that we do try and see the difference between the good and the bad. Right. Right. One of Walt's friends tells him when he's about to head out on this quest, and I love this line, they says, don't trust anybody, not the police, not the military, nobody. And to me, I think of this as the classic Alfred Hitchcock situation. You know, the good guys are after you, but the police are after you at the same time. Um, <laughs> what, did, what do you gain narratively by, by putting him in such isolation as a character? Well, I mean, what you're doing is uh, obviously in this this type of book is is immediately you know planting the seed you know within the idea of the reader that okay, if Walt got this warning, you got that warning just now too, right? And uh, and I think that you know there there's some key elements you know there's one particular medical um, descriptive like I don't want to give anything too much away like that but uh, there's a part where he's talking to Aiden Martinez like that um, the doctor who you know decides that he's going to assist him. Um, in this battle with Bedard, like that, and uh, you know, he, he basically, I can give it away, like that, because I don't think it's going to, you know, destroy any of the plot lines. But he gives a very detailed description of, you know, how you remove someone's face yeah. and can put it on a soccer ball. And um, it's basically to scare the living daylights out of this one individual, which, it, it, I, in my opinion, it does a pretty good job. Like, and then um, as they're you know riding up the mountain like that, you know, on these you know these mules, like it, Walt turns in the saddle and looks at Aiden Martinez for the first time, maybe in a just a little bit different way, and says, "You seem to be extraordinarily knowledgeable about that type of activity." Um, and where would you have learned that? And his statement is, well, you know, it's just, you know, basic, you know, first year medical school information is all it really is. But at that moment, you know, it's one of those moments where, you know, you take that line that you just gave, like you take it just one step further, like that. It's like Walt is depending on this individual, like at very close proximity, like that. Well, what if he's a bad guy too? Like, and so I think that's the key element there to plant that thought um that you know that it's you know everything may not be exactly as it first appears like that and uh, you know when you're down in mexico certainly that's the case i think one of the things about putting that thought in the reader's mind that you can't trust anybody is it means that yes the reader might be surprised when someone turns out to be untrustworthy but they're equally surprised when someone turns out to be a good guy, to be trustworthy when they, you know, come riding over the hill or whatever, whatever the situation is. So you kind of, you kind of set up a a double opportunity to, um, to put in a twist for the reader. 
Oh yeah, and and I think you know the, the, the you know when you just as you start thinking you know, really start having doubts you know about a character and then all of a sudden they come through right like that, that's right. that's a magic moment like it kind of reinfuses your sense of humanity just a little bit. So I feel kind of silly saying this because you just told us about a guy who talks about peeling people's faces off, but of all the details <laughs> from early in the journey, I think this might be before that, but but there's Walt gets all kinds of warnings early on, uh, both you know, very overt ones and more symbolic ones. But the one that really stuck with me was the detail of this cat in Porta Seguro with a wound on the side of its head. And somehow to me, mm-hmm. that seemed more foreboding than all of the people telling him you shouldn't be doing this. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you use details to create the mood that you want to create? Well, I mean, you know, the old saying is the devil's in the details. Like, and I think, you know, you've really got to, you know, dig deep, like it, and, and also like slow down. I mean, and whenever I'm doing like writer's workshops, you know, or things like that, you know, the first thing I'm always telling people is you've got to allow those characters to breathe. You've got to allow those characters to live. Um, and, you know, if you're going to do that, you know, then they're going to get that sense of detail. And yeah, I think they know that there's a tone, you know, to that. I think that it's something that, you know, that it's, uh, it's going to be, you know, pervasive like that, you know, to, to try and get the message across and the tone and the grain and the style like that you're trying to write a book. And, um, yeah, I mean, the, the smallest things, you know, can mean so much, uh, you know, just the, the, the first sentence there where Walt is like turning, um, the, the, the glass, you know, on the red lacquered surface of the bar of the Kentucky club there, um, that tells you something about the environs, you know, very quickly. Um, and that's, you know, you're always kind of also working, I think in a sense of dichotomy, you know, because I mean, the book is called depth of winter, but the temperature never gets below 90 degrees. Right. Um, and you know, the, and the, of course the title also, you know, was, it, it came from, you know, the Albert Camus quote that, you know, that I was surprised to discover that, you know, um, even in the depths of winter, there was within me an eternal summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what the book is about is that attempt, you know, to try and, you know, and, and stay human, try and stay, you know, alive like at through all of this you know brutality and all of this this insanity and all of this violence but um you can talk about those big words you know insanity brutality violence society culture all those things but it's always going to come down to the little things it's always going to come down to the pinpoint details um like walt you know reaching down to pet a cat and then noticing that it has you know a horrible wound on the side of its of its face like and so um you know, it's, you know, how you approach these things that, you know, that, that make the book worth reading, hopefully. At one point, Walt says, I've spent most of my life making judgments and living a moral code. But in this novel, he's a, he's a lawman working outside the law. Um, what is Walt's moral code? And did his moral code have to be adjusted for the particular circumstances of this novel? I think it did, um, in the sense that, you know, Walt, you know, he, he is a very much, you know, a, by the, you know, the code law man. He's a, there's a decent quality to him that I think is, uh, um, unique. Like, I mean, it's one of those words that you just don't hear that much anymore. Decent, you know, and when you remember when you're growing up, like your parents were always telling you to be decent, you know, to be kind, like, and to care. And I think that's one of the main reasons why it is that Walt's a sheriff. Like, he's an elected law enforcement official. People have to give him, you know, one of their most treasured uh, possessions, you know, their vote. 
and uh, and he he works very hard, like to be worthy of you know the the kind of uh, um, uh, entitlement you know that that they've given him. And in this situation, you know, in northern Mexico, up against these drug cartels and everything, Walt also kind of has to revert. I mean, he kind of has to revert back to a previous Walt that we've met before in, an, in uh, another man's moccasins. Um, we discovered that it was a, that was a book that I wrote, like where it kind of jumped back and forth with a dual narrative where Walt uh, um, finds a Vietnamese girl uh, on the side of the highway uh, in Wyoming. And what it does is remind him of the first uh, homicide investigation that he had at Tansonot Air Force Base in uh, Vietnam in 1967. And it's, it's a different morality um, in wartime. Um, and I think that Walt is aware of that. Um, the only thing that could have prepared him, you know, for what it is that he has to do while he's down in Mexico could possibly have been, you know, his, his service as a Marine in, uh, in Vietnam. Um, it's just, uh, in, in, in many ways, like it's, it's a world gone insane like that. And, uh, at a certain point in time, you're either going to have to abandon yourself, you know, to that insanity or you're not going to survive, um, and I think that that's, you know, one of the key elements, you know, with his, uh, abilities like it to, to, to try and survive the situation. Earlier in our discussion, you said that one of the first things you decide on when you're working on a new book is what is the message of the book? What is the message of depth of winter? Well, I think, you know, obviously with the title, um, the, the question is, is like, you know, well, how far do you go? Mm-hmm. How far are you willing to go, um, to protect, um, what is yours? You know, what's the most important thing to you? Um, you know, how much of your humanity are you willing to surrender to try and, you know, keep your, 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 uh, uh, your humanity? Um, I think that that's, you know, a, a question that we all, you know, face every day. Um, perhaps, you know, not quite so dramatic of, uh, conflictive situations as Walt faces, you know, in this particular book. But, um, but yeah, it's, a, it's a, it's a day to day, uh, um, you know, process, you know, guy cuts you off and takes your parking spot, you know, uh, you know, do you get out like a, you know, and, 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 you know, and hit him like that, do you, you know, you walk by like that and give him the finger like that, you know, or do you just like take it in stride like that and move on like that? I mean, there, there are questions as to, you know, how far you go with these things like that. And, you know, Walt's just kind of at the razor's edge in this particular book at all. You talked before about uh, the way that you know Walt is usually in Wyoming, and that the environment there uh, shapes his character. How, how do you see that Wyoming has shaped Walt, but also how has Wyoming shaped Craig Johnson? Oh, I think you know. There's <laughs> so many different directions I could go with that question. Um, Let's see. I guess the first one for me is I have to admit um, it, it was interesting because you were in, in the introduction you were talking about the Bookmarks Book Festival um, and Winston Salem like that. And uh, I was fortunate enough like whenever I met you, I was there like that. And I think I came back. There was another time I was there too like that. It's just a it's a wonderful festival like that in a wonderful town. And um, there's so many wonderful restaurants like that. There's live theater. There are musical acts. There are all these things going on. I couldn't write there, Charlie. There's no way. There are too many things going. <laughs> on too many distractions too much like that and uh you know i i live in a town of 25 like, <laughs> here in northern wyoming and uh it, it actually provides a, a focus i think 
um, you know, for the books and for the writing. Like, I mean, you know, a lot of people would say that it's kind of an isolated, you know, life, but, uh, um, and, and maybe it is like that, but, you know, I, I kind of, you know, find a, a way to, to stay focused and do what it is that I want to do with the books, um, in that kind of an environment. And, um, you know, I think for Walt, like that too, it's, it's a little bit of an isolated kind of situation, but that isolation comes at a cost. Like that, I mean, you know, you may not have, you know, all of the, the amenities, you know, that a lot of people in modern society have like that, but, you know, there are other things, you know, I mean, I've got 14,000 foot, you know, mountains just to the West of me here in the Cloud Peak Wilderness area, like that, that has no roads, no electricity, no campsites, no nothing. Like it's about the size of Rhode Island. Wow. And, uh, and, you know, in Johnson County is about the size of New Hampshire. Like that. And so, um, I don't know, you know, that, that, you know, that things become very clear, you know, uh, in, in, with that kind of isolation, like that, and that kind of distance. Um, I think the way I've described it in many ways is, uh, you know, Wyoming is one of those places that, you know, when you look at the distance, it, it, it pulls at the corners of your eyes um, until they hurt, you know, and uh, and, I, and I think that that's, you know, in many ways the way that Walt looks at it and the way that I look at it, too. And and, and I think also there's a little bit of a, a misnomer that's been promoted by a lot of film and, and television and, and books, too, that there's this like whole Western aspect of each man is an island unto himself and a man does what a man's got to do. And we're all out of here taking care <laughs> of it. That, that anybody that wrote that foolishness has never been you know, from a ranching or farming community. Um, when there's a, a thinner veneer you know, of, of, of humanity, um, it becomes that much more important to kind of rely upon each other. Right. Um, you, you ask anybody, you know, up here, you know, where I live, like that, if you got a rope and you got a, you know, a horse, you got a part-time job twice a year during calving and branding season. Um, there's just more work than most people are capable of doing um, in these kind of societies, like that. And so, in this culture, like that. And so, you know, you do you rely more on your neighbors, like that. And uh, you know, hey, something happens, like that. Your nearest neighbor's ten miles away, like that. Well, you desperately need that neighbor of yours ten miles. Miles away, and I think that that sometimes is one of the things that's overlooked, um, especially in the, the the you know the the, the purview of, of, of the, the the Western genre in many ways. Right, we have an expression for that in the mountains of North Carolina, where I spent my summers growing up. Uh, it's called "haze down," and it's fixing to rain. Uh, you know, we used to put up hay in bales <laughs> that you lifted up and you put into a truck, and man, when when the hay was down and the rain was coming. Everybody who was nearby was out in that hayfield helping whoever's hay it was, you know, to, to put you it You need up. to hustle. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, no doubt about it. We had the same problem out here lately, as a matter of fact. We've been getting a lot of rain, and everybody's trying to get that third cutting in as quick That's as right. they can. That's right. Trying to be very specific, you know, about Wyoming and about the American West and the high plains and all of that, like that. But there's no reason at all why someone from the mountains of North Carolina can't absolutely understand every single, you know, facet of what it is that I'm trying to write. Right. Hopefully. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us something to think about in terms of writing and give our listeners a little bit of insight into Craig Johnson. So if you're ready for the speed round, we, we will begin. <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. I'll okay. do my best. <laughs> what word do you love to work into your writing? Decent. The one that I mentioned before. Decent. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? <laughs> like where's your favorite place to write oh at my ranch where could you never write oh 
That's a tough one because I, I, I can, I can write you, you know, when you first start out like that, you know, you're always very precious about your writing. You want to sit at your desk with your cup of coffee, looking out your window like that. But you know, as well as I do that, you know, as you know, as you have a modicum of success, like that, you find yourself writing in train stations yeah. and airports, you know, everywhere like that. So I, I have no answer for that. I, 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 I try and write anywhere, everywhere. <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Commas. Uh-huh. I, I'm, I am I am a comma artist, you know, and, and my <laughs> wife, who's like the one that like goes through my books, like at first, you know, finds it really frustrating just how many peppered commas that I can put into a single sentence. Like, a, you know, there's the the Oxford comma, the Chicago comma, and then there's the Craig Johnson comma, which is like I think a good <laughs> sentence with about eight or nine commas is you know that's a damn fine sentence. <laughs> What's the first book you remember reading? Oh, uh, probably. Probably the Red Pony. Um, probably Steinbeck's The Red Pony was absolutely one of my favorites, and and there's a reason why Henry's Bar um, in in the books and in the television show is called The Red Pony. Yeah. What are you reading now? What am I reading now? Larry Brown book, uh, The Miracle of Catfish. Um, he's from down your way, like mm-hmm. it, and yeah. uh, marvelous book, like it, because I think um, what it was it was a manuscript that he turned in, but it was not finished. Um, it wasn't edited because he passed away, and so it's got all. Of it's 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 purely unedited, um, complete epic Larry Brown, like mm-hmm. that. and uh, I'm one of those guys. Like I, I'm I'm one of those readers. Like uh, you know, if I really like a reader, I mean, if I really like a writer, there's not enough. There's never enough. Yeah. You know, they can write a two thousand page book, and I'm a okay with that. <laughs> what book would you like to have written? Oh, God, there's just so many. Um, oh, To Kill a Mockingbird. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Oh, um, historical fiction. And finally, just, you know, what you would you like to beat yourself up with so much research? I don't, I don't think I'd ever get it written. I would just keep doing the research forever. It'd be the, you know, the rabbit hole I'd disappear into. <laughs> what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I read your book again. Oh, that's a good one. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a new community gathering place and independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Craig Johnson, whose new Longmire mystery, Depth of Winter, will be available September 4th, wherever books are sold. Craig, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Good to talk with you. During the busy fall publishing season, you can hear new episodes of Inside the Writer's Studio on the 10th, 20th, and 30th of each month. Coming soon, I'll be talking to several authors live at this year's Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors on September 6th through 9th. Tune in to hear the creator of Captain Underpants, Dave Pilkey, Newbery Medal winner Kelly Barnhill, and the modern Mrs. Darcy herself, Anne Bogle. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.